Father God, as we come to your inspired and errant word, what we believe and know to be truth, we ask, Father, that we would not be hearers of the word only, but in fact, we would be doers as well. And so take these two verses and some tangential ones we'll look at and allow us to rightly divide them and then rightly apply them to our lives. Encourage us through your truth and change us, transform us for your glory and our betterment. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to begin by reading 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. You might follow along as it's written up there because I'm going to make some grammatical statements and it might be easier to see than for me to read it. Do you not know, and in the Greek text, the verb also has the pronoun and the you is plural. So we're not talking about you specific, we're talking about you as in believers. Do you not know that you are, again, plural, the temple of God, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? We're not talking about you individually, we're talking about you plurally. If anyone, now we're talking about an individual person, if anyone destroys, and I'm going to argue in a moment that's too strong a word, it actually means wound, it means damage, it means hurt. It means attack. If anyone attacks God's temple, God, same word, will attack him or discipline him. Singular. For God's temple is holy, and you are, now we're going back to plural, that temple. Now, if I were still pastoring in Texas, it would be something like this. Y'all know that if you've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, Y'all corporately are the temple of the living God. Now, if one of you messes with God's church, God's going to take you out to the woodshed, and he's going to have a few words with you, and they won't be pleasant. But corporately, y'all are God's temple, and God's temple is holy. That's what he's saying to us. Yet, through the years... I've noticed that upon occasion, people attack God's church, God's temple, God's bride. They don't like the church. They don't have use for the church. Perhaps they have been wounded by the church. Perhaps they rightly have some grievances with the church. And they feel justified somehow in attacking God's bride, the church. I've also noticed individuals who through their actions, maybe become quite influential in the church, and then their actions undermine the church. I think of a pastor I know, not locally, who uh, was demonstrated to be a serial adulterer. And when this information became clear, a lot of marriages were damaged, not the least of which was his own. And there were many people who were attending this church that this was the first time they had attended a gospel-preaching church, and they just left not to go to another gospel-preaching church. They just left the church altogether. And the name of Christ was solid. I think of James 3.1. 
Let not many of you presume to be teachers, my brethren, for do you not know that we shall surely incur a stricter judgment? Listen up, Jeff Hines. Listen up, Sunday school teacher or elder or MTL or small group leader or someone who models Christ in One Way Club or Gen 180 or works with women's ministries or men's ministries, listen up. Because it says, not many of us should presume to be teachers, my brethren, for do we not know that surely we will incur a stricter judgment? And it's been my observation through the years, about three decades now, that individuals often gain influence in the church, and there's nothing wrong with that. If influence has been deserved through godly living and godly modeling, influence is fine. But occasionally, I've known individuals who have gained a fair amount of influence, and then they become less interested in the things of God. And they begin to drift, and sometimes they get a little jaded towards the church, and Sometimes they get a little bit bitter or they get around other very critical individuals and they talk down about the church. They have to be careful because the one institution that Jesus Christ created was the church. He called it his temple. He called it his bride. He didn't create parachurch organizations. He didn't create business organizations. Nothing wrong with those things, but what he created was the church, and he called it his bride, and we need to protect the bride of Christ. Verse 17 says, if anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy him. As you and I begin to examine the text in detail, let me back up and read verse 16 again. Do you not know, plural, that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, plural? The point of this text is not that God dwells individually in a believer in Jesus Christ. That's true. You can find that point in Ephesians 1 where the Holy Spirit is the down payment guaranteeing one's future inheritance at the moment in which you and I <coughs> accept Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. That is absolutely a bedrock biblical truth. But that's not what's taught in this text. What's taught in this text is that we need to protect the temple. We need to protect the bride. We need to protect the church. Because corporately, God has chosen to dwell among us when we gather together. There's a passage we're getting to in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10. It is so mind-boggling that if it weren't in Scripture and it wasn't clear in Scripture, I would say obviously it's not true. But it is. The text tells us that celestial angels, we're not talking about fallen angels, we're talking about heavenly angels, when we gather together, they want to be on break from their job because they want to look in and observe what we're doing. Really? 
I mean, I don't even know what I'm going to say when I preach that text. I'm probably going to go on vacation and give it to Pastor Isaiah and let him exegete it. Why would celestial angels long to look in on what we're doing when sometimes we're so bored with what we're doing, we sleep in and we allow recreation to overwhelm our corporate time of worship and we're going here and there rather than gathering corporately and the angels who are in the presence of God Almighty long to look in and to be a part of what we're doing. I think we greatly underestimate this institution that God has created called the temple, called the church, called the bride of Christ. And we greatly underestimate how we're to protect it, how we're to nurture it, how we're to be engaged in it. And the text tells us if we attack the church, God will attack us. That's what it says. Now, my ESV is a little strong. It uses the word destroy. Actually, if you had added the prefix dia, it would mean demolition or destroy. But that prefix isn't there, so it really actually doesn't mean demolition, destroy. It means attack, wound, hurt, in some way impugn the church. When we do that... God says that we're attacking his institution, his bride, and we need to be careful. Now, we're not saying that there aren't occasions when we bring up things in the church and we say, you know what, that's not right. There needs to be change. We're not saying that when a pastor or a priest or a religious leader does something immoral, unethical, ungodly, illegal, they shouldn't be brought before the secular magistrates. Of course they should. We're not saying that we don't go to a leader and say, you know, I've been observing your life and there's parts of your life that do not square with the Word of God. Of course we do that. What we're saying is that when we become jaded, when we become slanderous towards the bride, the church, and we impugn the church, and we become negative towards the church, we are attacking the only institution that God has created. And he says when we attack the church, he's actually going to attack us. Now how many of us have endured immature blasts by immature Christ followers who just unload in inappropriate ways. I think of the very first uh, elder meeting I was ever at. I was either 24 or 25, and it was in the Evangelical Free Church. Interestingly enough, it was in the same Evangelical Free Church where Pastor Adam also interned. And uh, it was a three-hour elder meeting, and I was there to observe and to learn and we opened the meeting with exactly one minute of prayer asking God for wisdom. 60 seconds. It could have been 62 seconds. I'm not sure. But it wasn't very long. And then we spent the next two hours and 59 minutes fighting over the new color of the carpet that was going to go in. I'm not even making that up. We just we fought over carpet color 
And I remember at one point someone challenged that, is this what an elder board ought to do? And another elder said, well, yeah, this thing is expensive. And so we need to argue and we need to, we need to voice our opinions over the color of carpet. That's like fighting over the color of the walls or what we plant outside. Really? The institution that God has created and that's what we're concerned with? The color of carpet? Well, thankfully, they invited me back to an elder meeting a month later. And we have one minute of prayer. We ask God for wisdom again. And then for the next two hours and 59 minutes, we haven't solved the color of the carpet. We fought over it again. What an internship. Wow. And we wonder, we wonder if that's what God intends for his church. I rather doubt it. I remember the first congregational meeting I was at in the church I pastored in Pennsylvania. When I got there, the evening services really weren't going very well. And the elders wanted to know, would I be able to rescue them? Well, not even a chance. And our attendance was, it was embarrassing. And so they thought, we can use this time better. We're going to become a church of small groups on Sunday night. In that congregational meeting, a man stood up and screamed at me and accused me of premeditated murder on the Sunday evening service. And he stormed out. And I had to ask somebody, who is he? I've never seen him before. He had never been to a Sunday evening service. I wasn't even sure he didn't do a Sunday morning service. But if you didn't have a Sunday evening service, you were in a godly church. Well, our oldest child is learning disabled. And she asked me later on that night with fear who I had murdered. Shame on the church. Shame on the church. Now in 18 years here, I can say with all integrity, I've never heard an inappropriate word at a congregational meeting. I've been asked some hard questions. I've been asked questions I can't answer. I've had individuals point out things that need to change and need to improve. But always in an appropriate and godly way. Good for the church. Good for the model that you have lived out. This is God's bride. This is God's temple. It's far from perfect. But it's the only institution Christ created. And he says if we attack, impugn, hurt the church, God will bring us out to the woodshed. Yet people damage the church all the time. They do it through preferences. You know, all of us have preferences. I'm not talking about bedrock truth. I'm talking about preferences. And we turn our preference, not you, but people turn one's preference into doctrine and they damage the church. I've seen it in worship, not here, but elsewhere. I grew up in a church that sang hymns. I like hymns. I also grew up in a church that sang choruses. I like choruses. You know what I can't stand? I don't like 7-Eleven songs. Hate them. Seven words sung 11 times. Don't like them at all. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But if I sing something three times, I got it. I got it. That's enough. But have you ever looked at Psalm 136? 
Psalms are songs, right? If you want to memorize a 26-verse psalm, go to Psalm 136. His love endures forever. 26 times. So we sing, and his love endures forever. Got it, Lord. No, not yet, Jeff. His love endures forever. Got it, Lord. Not yet. And until we sing like four words 27 times, I got a biblical example that says my preference doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And so I don't like 7-Eleven songs. It doesn't matter. You might. And it might impact your life when it doesn't impact mine. Preferences, all people have them. But godly people don't demand them in the church and don't wound the church and impugn the church and hurt the church over our preferences. We've got to be careful with preferences. I think about the holidays. I'm thankful I'm in a church that doesn't fight over these things. But I know a lot of people who do. We just came through Halloween. Some of you celebrate it, some of you don't. Some of you trick or treat, and some of you know it's from the devil. People are all over the place on Halloween, right? I was not tipping my hand, I just misspoke at that moment. <laughs> I don't actually care about Halloween, I don't. It's not my favorite, it's not my least favorite, I don't care about it. We have convictions, our convictions are conditioned by the Word of God, but none of us are going to have a book, chapter, and verse that says Halloween is right or Halloween is wrong. Follow your conscience. It's a Romans 14 issue. We got Christmas. Some of us have grandchildren and children, and we're going to visit St. Nick in the mall and be happy, and some of us are going to avoid the center mall like it's the plague. Follow your conscience. It's a Romans 14 issue. We'll come up to Easter and some of you are going to gather eggs and some of you aren't going to buy eggs for two weeks. Follow your conscience. These are Romans 14 issues. Think of the education in the United States. It's incredible. Incredible. You know, we have like 70 skilled teachers or former teachers that go to Highland. Man, are we blessed. And we have public school and private school. And we have virtual school and we have home school. And we are blessed. Why would we fight over the preferences? Preferences, all people have them. Follow them with your convictions. But don't wound and impugn the church of Christ over them. November is always a tough month every other year in this country voting. Whew. Probably no two of us agree on every single issue. By all means, we ought to allow the word of God to impact our lives and to impact our voting. But we're probably going to weigh things slightly differently. Give people a little bit of grace. And then now I'm going to get real personal, skinny jeans. I am never wearing skinny jeans, not once. I know, a collective amen, right? But I don't care if you wear them. They just don't look good on me. I'm not wearing them. But we do get caught up in dress, don't we? Have you ever been to a third world country on a Sunday morning? People come in in rags. They come in smelling, sometimes dirty, 
And they sing with such joy and they're such clear hearts. And I rather doubt that the Lord is looking at their clothes. He's looking at their hearts. And that's what God wants us to do. Preferences, we all have them, don't we? But it's the immature Christian that forces the preferences on others. Well, that's what's going on in Corinth. You see, when Jesus says, if anyone destroys my church... That if is very technical. It doesn't come across that way in English. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. He's not saying, I'm not sure if you are or you aren't, or you are or you're. He's very specific. So I'm going to just go through this very quickly. We have something called a third class condition. It's the word in, and it requires the subjective mood. Um, that's not what's in the text. A third class condition says something like this. Um, with your little handheld device, if you're tweeting right now, we're going to bring you to the front next week. We're not sure of your innocence. We're not sure of your guilty, but we're going to just tell you, if you are tweeting right now rather than listening, we're not going to be happy. Then there's a second-class condition. It's a different Greek word. It's I, and it's in the past tense, aorist or imperfect, and it kind of goes something like this. If you were just looking at your emails, and the ushers assure us that you weren't, but if you had been looking at your emails, pretending that you were in 1 Corinthians 3, we would have accused you, and tried to discipline you. And then there's this thing called a first-class condition. It's also this word, I, but it's in a different, not past tense, and it actually says this. We have cameras throughout this building, which in fact we do. And we've been reviewing the cameras, and we notice on your handheld device that every week... You are on Facebook during the sermon. We have proof. So next week, that is your seat. It assumes and declares that you're guilty. That's exactly the tense and the if clause in today's text. Paul's not saying to the Corinthians, you know, I'm not sure if you're dividing the church or not. If you are, you shouldn't. Or, I'm pretty sure you're innocent. He actually uses an if clause that says, you are absolutely guilty and we're going out to the woodshed. And isn't that how the book begins, right? What does it begin? It, it begins by saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Isn't that how the book begins? They're dividing over who their favorite teacher or preacher is. In this church, it is a settled issue. Pastor Dave is number one. Right? There we go. Pastor Dave. <laughs> ah, Jared's got him as Pastor Dave number one. Absolutely. It's a settled issue. But in their church, they're fighting over it. And if you read through 1 Corinthians, there's several of these issues, isn't there? So they're fighting over their favorite pastor, but then you get to chapter 6, and 
they're taking one another to court. And they want leeway, and Paul says, no, that's not a leeway issue. That's bedrock. And you get to chapter 7, and it's morality, and they want to be able to sleep with who they want. And Paul says, no, that's bedrock. There's no wiggle room. you got to be married. But then you get to chapters 8 and 10. And you have people coming over for dinner, and the host is serving meat. And everyone knows that when you go to the Agora, the marketplace, and you buy meat, there's a real good chance that some of that meat was earlier in the morning at the Temple of Zeus as an offering, and then is being sold by the Temple of Zeus for a profit. And because of that, a lot of Christians in Corinth were going vegan. They're not eating meat. Because they don't want to risk whether they're eating meat offered to idols or not. And Paul says, hey, 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 don't divide the church over that. It's a conscience issue. If, if you're worried that it was in front of Zeus, don't eat. If you don't care, get the A1 out and enjoy. It's a conscience issue. And what's going on in Corinth is they've got them reversed. The bedrock issues, they don't want to obey. And then the preference issues, they want to utterly divide the church over them. And it's God's bride. It's God's temple. It's the institution that Christ created. And they're taking preferences and they're dividing the church. And Paul says... Anyone who destroys or damages, impugns God's church, God is going to take them out to the woodshed. He actually says that if you and I and Matthew 5 are at the altar and we're about to give our gift to the Lord, if the basket is coming by and we're about to put our offering in the basket and we remember that we have a relationship difficulty in this room, put that money back in your pocket. Go and reconcile the relationship and then offer the gift to the Lord because the body, the temple, the bride matters so much more than the money you're about to put in the offering plate. We don't want to damage the bride of Christ. I think about the book of Revelation. If I were to ask you, what is the topic or theme of Revelation, probably most of us would say the end times, and it's a great answer, but it's actually answer number two. Revelation 1.1 says the revelation of what? Jesus Christ, who then goes on to tell us about the end times. The book is all about Christ. Well, in like way, what is the church all about? It's also about Christ. And sometimes we allow secondary issues to take our eyes off of what is central. It's not our preferences. It's all about Christ. And so if you think about that book in Revelation, after being told that the Revelation is all about Christ, in chapters 2 and 3 we're introduced to seven churches, right? We call them the seven churches of Asia. And how have they been doing in modeling Christ-like behavior, not very well. Five of the seven we see have problems. We start with Ephesus. 
And Ephesus used to be red hot, on fire. They loved the Lord. It was all the centrality of Christ. And how does it end? But I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Your eyes are no longer on Christ. They're on your preferences. They're on secondary issues. The second church is Pergamum. It actually is a word that means married. They're no longer married to the bride. They're married to the world. And they've allowed the things of the world to push out the things of Christ. They've made their pursuits and their enjoyments and their recreations much more important than the bride. The third is Thyatira. They used to be doctrinally sound. They used to be all about Christ. But then they allowed their minds to wander, and now they're about superstition and occult, and the things of Christ are being pushed out. That's what's happening in the church. The fourth is Sardis. Sardis is still all about Christ, but with no emotion, no care. It's a dead church. They can spout the right orthodoxy, but they're not in love with Jesus. They're not in love with Jesus. The things of Jesus has been pushed out. And then there's Laodicea. They're all about money. They're all about property. They're all about the things that they can acquire, the things that they can do. They're not about Christ. And you remember what Jesus says to all of them. He says, if you do not repent, I will remove my lampstand. I will remove my presence from you. So right now I'm taking you out to the woodshed and we're going to have a little discipline. But if you don't straighten up, I'm out of here. Jesus would rather abandon the church than play second fiddle. That's what he's saying. Fast forward 2,000 years. Out of those seven churches, only one exists today. Just Smyrna. Six have absolutely no evangelical witness at all. What did Jesus say? If you're not about me, I'm going to remove my presence. And he did it six out of the seven times. Gossip and slander. They hurt his church. If anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy him. Preferences on secondary issues. They're allowed to divide the church. And what does God say? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Relationships among believers <coughs> that are strained and not restored. They damage the church. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are God's temple. And is God's temple. We have to act like God's temple. So, so many of you do so well. May we all take the next step and acting like God's temple. God's temple is holy. Let's pray. Father God, uh, forgive us for when we have allowed the things of the world to push out or to become more central in our lives 
than your son. Forgive us when we have allowed our preferences to become central rather than to see our preferences as Romans 14 issues. Forgive us when we have allowed relationships that need to be restored to simmer and boil or faster. Forgive us when we have become jaded towards your bride, the church, rather than working that the church might live out Christ-likeness. Father, we readily admit that the church, this church, is so incredibly imperfect. So many areas of needed work transform us, allow us never to be complacent, certainly not to be prideful, and to see the areas where as individuals and corporately as a church. We have a long way to go and empower us to work on those areas. And Father, we pray for sister churches in our area that we could, alongside them, work that many might come to know Christ and to grow in Christ. Father, we thank you for the institution of the church and may we value it and speak highly of it while all the while confessing our shortfallings and working to improve them so that your church would shine as it ought. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.